Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Close Talking. I am one of the co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I'm the other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And this is the podcast where we read a poem, talk about that poem, and then read that poem again. Today, well, it's poetic, but it's not maybe technically a poem. Today, we are talking about Harper's monologue from the end of Angels in America, A Gay Fantasia on National Themes by Tony Kushner. This will be the second uh, part of a play that we've done. We talked about um, the part in Antony and Cleopatra. Um, But otherwise, we've kept strictly to the form. So this will be an interesting uh, look at at how the, the poetic moves throughout mediums. Indeed. And similar, as you mentioned, we did talk about a, a passage from Antony and Cleopatra. Shakespeare as a playwright, very much known for having poetry in his prose. And a little bit of background, I think, on Angels in America, Tony Kushner and the character of Harper, which I'll do real quick before we we read this, points to how connected this piece is to poetry itself, in addition to being poetic prose, uh, there are poetic roots in the work itself. Tony Kushner had a friend who was diagnosed with AIDS and he had a dream where an angel visited that friend and immediately after having that dream, wrote a poem that he claims he has never looked at again, but the title of that poem was Angels in America. And uh, it is theorized that some of the seemingly strange connections that show up in the finished play originate from whatever that poem was. And the play itself is very poetic, particularly the second part of it, which is where this comes from. So Angels in America, A Gay Fantasia on National Themes is a two-part play by Tony Kushner. Part one is called Millennium Approaches, and it's about three hours long. And part two is called Perestroika, and it's about three and a half to four hours long. It's a huge play. The first part is a little bit more contained, sort of sets the groundwork. And then the second part, Perestroika, is where things really get kind of crazy and start branching off in all kinds of metaphysical and dreamlike ways. And the character of Harper, who speaks this monologue, uh, is a Mormon woman. Uh, She's introduced as the unhappy wife of a closeted homosexual Mormon gentleman. And she is addicted to Valium, which uh, is given as the reason for some of her flights of fancy, let's say. She's regularly attributed with having sort of dreams and visions and seeing things throughout the play. Though most of the people who've played her contend that the Valium is a a fake out and that really this is uh, her visions and the things that come to her within the play uh, we essentially meet her the first day the Valium doesn't work. Like the Valium is there to contain her her more uh, fanciful mental journeys, let's say. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. Anyway, highly recommend the play. And Harper is a really interesting character. Um, one other piece about linking poems and poetics to this particular uh, section is that Harper as a character speaks very poetically. And in fact, Mary Louise Parker, who played this role in the 2003 HBO adaptation said that one of the challenges of speaking this monologue was to speak it as a character who just happens to speak poetically, not like really acting it and not giving it uh, 
a heightened sense the way that the language might indicate because this is just how harper thinks and feels and talks i agree <laughs> yeah. um i have nothing else to say except um you should read it i'm very yeah. excited i love this part it's so good cool this is harper's monologue from angels in america night flight to san francisco chase the moon across america god it's been years since i was on a plane when we hit 35,000 feet, we'll have reached the tropopause, the great belt of calm air, as close as I'll ever get to the ozone. I dreamed we were there. The plane leapt the tropopause, the safe air, and attained the outer rim, the ozone, which was ragged and torn, patches of it threadbare as old cheesecloth, and that was frightening. But I saw something. Only I could see because of my astonishing ability to see such things. Souls were rising. From the earth far below, souls of the dead, of people who had perished, from famine, from war, from the plague. And they floated up like skydivers in reverse, limbs all akimbo, wheeling and spinning. And the souls of these departed joined hands, clasped ankles, and formed a web a great net of souls. And the souls were three atom oxygen molecules of the stuff of ozone, and the outer rim absorbed them and was repaired. Nothing's lost forever. In this world, there's a kind of painful progress, longing for what we've left behind and dreaming ahead. At least, I think that's so. Cool. That's so good. God, it's so good. Um, so the subject matter of Angels in America is at its core about the uh, AIDS crisis and HIV. But it also mixes in the end of the Cold War and Mormonism. Um, and it sort of blends it all together into this crazy, beautiful mess of a mix that just it's so great yeah yeah and it's a really interesting i just finished reading the play i had seen um the hbo special which i highly recommend which is great but i had never read it i've never seen a real production of it because i think it's so unruly to put on but if it is ever in my area i'm gonna go there immediately yeah it's a really i mean it's a fascinating play for so many reasons Part of it, which I think gets at this particular moment of Harper's monologue, is it feels like, um, so Perestroika, which is the name of the second part, is like a reference to a sort of societal restructuring that was like thought or an idea that was going to happen in the Soviet Union, like particularly when I think Gorbachev was in power or something. Um, and so thinking about that, um, and there's a part in his playwrights notes where Kushner talks about the perestroika being a comedy, um, although not a farce, um, in that a comedy in the sort of Shakespearean traditional sense in which things are sort of resolved and, and things have a quote unquote happy ending. Although, I mean, that's sort of complicated, but, um, but you get the sense that he's kind of he's trying to like order an idea of America um, or come up with sort of like a positive vision. 
Um, but the I think the like the interesting part about the play is that he's also trying to reckon with like the absolute worst of America. Um, you know, the having it, you know, in the in the middle of the AIDS crisis um, with the total sort of uh, homophobic, like vilification of people who are gay and who are queer um, with the total like abandonment of them as, as many of them sort of died. Uh, but also it's, it's a big reckoning with race in America too. Um, and sort of the, um, you know, just the, the horrible racial legacy of America that it's sort of founded on. Um, and it's an interesting, it's, it's, I like to think about that when I think about how big the play is at seven and a half hours, because it's like, this is like how much time Kushner thinks is needed to like finally come up with a positive vision for America, which is interesting. Um, but when we get Harper here at the end, um, to me, this is, this is like the last thing that she says, basically. Um, and she's on a night flight to San Francisco, which in this play is also kind of heaven um, because another character visits heaven and it looks like a sort of shabby version of San Francisco. And uh, there's also a period right before that uh, where one character asks another to describe the afterlife and it's later revealed that the person's talking about heaven and they say that it's a city not unlike San Francisco. So there's a consistent theme of San Francisco and heaven being linked because um, mm-hmm. the play itself takes place in New York, um, right? In 19, the fall of 1985 into the January of 1986. Yeah, yeah, and um, also here the the moment um, where she says she's seeing the souls rising um, of the dead of people who had perished from famine, from war, from the plague. The plague also has a specific resonance to AIDS as a plague. Um, where there's a there's a moment when Prior Walter he comes from a long line of Prior Walters or whatever, and they visit two of his like ancestors visit him. They're like heralds into the afterlife because Prior Walter also has AIDS and is thinking that he might um, be dying um, like sort of soon. And they had both died in various plagues in history. I think one had was the Black Plague and. And so there's sort of a explicit connection that Kushner makes there between these sort of plagues and AIDS as its own sort of plague epidemic. I like your point about taking just so long to have to reckon with the very problematic history of the the various subjects that are under examination in Angels, because there's a lot of gender and sexuality investigation there's political questions, there's racial questions, and there's religious questions, all of which are dealt with somewhat separately, but they intermingle in a way that they do in reality. And Harper's character, less so than any of the others, like she doesn't really fit specifically into any one of those conversations. Um because each of the other characters is struggling in some specific way with one or more of those identities. And Harper is sort of working against her Mormon upbringing, but we learn that she's always been out of step with 
traditional Mormonism and doesn't really feel like she's a part of that world in the way that the other characters who are really dealing with it are. So it's interesting to have this piece from her at the end to get her take on a lot of the themes and subjects that the play grapples with because her character doesn't naturally speak to any one of them in the way that the others do at various points. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, in some ways I see her, although I think she does a lot of things, but as the kind of, like the sort of lyric, like the true lyrical voice of the play, I guess. Um, and I think that in a way that she, because she is somewhat, you know, she's involved in a sort of dramatic conflict with her husband, who's, um, you know, like very conflicted about being gay and like being in the closet about it. And, and at one point sort of leaves Harper um, and actually for quite a while leaves Harper. And so there, there is sort of a specific dramatic conflict that she has, but in terms of the, the political um, resonances, she is kind of removed. And in that way, I think it, it allows her to, to, in some ways, go higher. She's on a plane th- tens of thousands of feet above the country she's speaking on. And she's not even just talking about the United States. She's talking about the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. And this is great. It's in, so it, it's in, the, it's like toward very end of the play, uh, or pretty much near the end, Act 5, Scene 10. And the description of the, like, how it should be staged is also great. Um, it's like the same night, Lewis and Pryor, who are other characters, remain from the previous scene. Joe is sitting alone in Brooklyn. Harper appears. She is in a window seat on board a jumbo jet, airborne, <laughs> oh, which I love. It was um, so I got to see the the run of Angels that's on here in New York right now with Andrew Garfield and Nathan Lane. Ah, uh, yeah, curious, but. Uh, the way that they staged this is they just had her in an airplane seat and nothing else and a spotlight on her on stage. And that was very effective. That's good. That's it was, it was incredible. But um, yeah, the this, this staging is an interesting question because she's also she's totally alone, just sort of speaking. Yeah. And it's a great moment. So like right before that, between she leaves Joe, finally, her husband. Um, and so here she reappears along it's a nice moment because she's sort of alongside joe um i presume or it depends on the staging but at least the way that it's written um but joe has no voice in this scene it's like totally her moment um and it's such a great like theatrical specific kind of moment where i've been thinking about this a lot where the great thing about the stage is that everyone is in the same place, even if, um, you know, you're pretending that they're in different places. And that kind of like one space being many spaces is like, I think, totally unique to theater as a genre. Um, And so the fact that, you know, you can have um, Harper give this monologue that's totally her own monologue and we have no expectation of anyone responding to it. But then the fact that she can be sort of nearby, you know, the character, um, her husband that she's left, um, 
is like, I imagine it would be so effective visually as sort of like, you know, a reminder of, of where she's left and where she's going. Definitely. And the fact that the previous scene, as you noted, is an interaction between the two of them where she essentially says, I'm leaving, give me your credit card, this is it, goodbye, I'm traveling. Which also highlights this central tension in the play and kind of in her relationship with Joe. Uh, the play is very interested in movement versus stasis and progress versus uh, control and regression. And so that shows up in a couple of different places in different ways. Joe, her husband, is a conservative uh, Republican. And beyond that, he's also uh, very interested, not just politically and ideologically, but also personally in a sense of stasis and uh, sameness. Whereas from the very first scene where she's introduced, Harper is interested in travel and movement. And one of the first visions she has is of this guy who is uh, Mr. Lies from the International Order of Travel Agents. And so the whole play has sort of been building up to Harper finally going on a trip and really being in motion. And I'm interested what your thoughts are about her giving this, I don't even know what to call it, um, because the way it ends, it almost ends up being a uh, a prediction of what will come or a statement about the the world's the project of the world almost um, and what it means that she is giving this while she is in motion in between spaces in such a liminal realm of like she's not in the ozone layer and she's not in the earth she's in the tropopause this like calm belt of air between two places she's in a plane she's not in new york she's not in san francisco she's over ohio or you know nebraska or something like what what do you think it means that she's we'll dig into what she's actually saying obviously but what do you think it means that she's saying it while she's in transit yeah that's a great question um and Another just uh, that I love that you brought up the sort of tension between stasis and movement um, because the prior Walter in his prophet dumb is given this like holy book of stasis basically that he can sort of use to kind of like stop everything um, and keep things as they are. And in the end, prior Walter um, re returns the book, goes to heaven and returns the book, um, and is kind of like, um, you know, I want more life, basically. Um, and that's what he says, bless me anyway, I want more life. And, you know, I want to live past hope. And so I, I feel like Harper is saying a similar kind of thing, where there's this, um, it's, it's different, but it's, there's the in this world, there's a kind of painful progress or whatever. And so the, the progress, which, you know, as we've seen in the play is terrible, um, or, or what's, what is moving, you know, is terrible. If we think about the movement of, you know, illness for sort of example. Um, but the progress itself is sort of essential, I think, for Harper and for Kushner. Um, and so the fact that Harper is, you know, in the tropopause, which is like between, yeah, the troposphere, which is the lower level and the stratosphere, 
which is the upper level and is going toward the ozone layer and is in the plane and is in this like liminal space sort of makes her an embodied like representation of something progressing that is she's not she's not the beginning and she's not the end and she's she's just movement itself um so that sort of feels important i i really like that and i think it fits so nicely as well with her character's relationship to reality where she's been moving in and out of what we would recognize as a real world she's very much a traveler between uh the world as it exists around her and the world as she imagines it and it feels like here there's a sort of synthesis between those two things where her ability to see things that may not be apparent to everyone is here not showing up the way it has before here it is a melding of how the things that she sees represent the way reality works it's almost uh as though in her progression through the play uh, there's a lot of talk about prophecy and prior, as you said, he gets this book and becomes a prophet for a while. But that Harper here is almost in melding her ability to see things with an understanding of the real world has attained a level of like prophetic insight where the statements that she's making here are about stuff that you or I might not see, but because of how... Uh, it's constructed within the play and particularly as you pointed out how she puts the button on it about painful progress it connects it back to something that is real and it connects it back to the world making the things that she saw an insight about reality as opposed to an escape from it as they have been sometimes previously in the play yeah yeah no i think that's exactly right yeah it's such an interesting moment especially in sort of the last moment when she's describing you know, what she sees, um, souls were rising. Um, kind of like the general idea behind it is that the sort of the souls of the dead rise up and um, become a part of the ozone layer, which is sort and then sort of in that way become a kind of, you know, the way that the ozone layer protects us from the ultraviolet rays and all this stuff. Um, the souls of the dead become this kind of like protective aura around us. Um, and that's kind of the vision that she has. Um, but similarly with this merging of, of reality and to something that we can't see one, I think one particularly great moment or feature of this in terms of, you know, writing and the lyric is, is the very specific way that the ozone the fact that it's the ozone layer and the fact that, you know, this part, um, you know, and, and the souls of these departed joined hands, clasped ankles and formed a web, a great net of souls. And the souls were three atom oxygen molecules of the stuff of ozone. And the fact that he that Kushner goes to the uh, is naming, you know, that the ozone is made of the, the O3, three atom molecules is such a great moment because it's it gets very precise and scientific, um, which like in that time, but also still this time, you know, science, if we think about poetry or, you know, in our talk about concrete and, and the real and the literal, um, you know, science has almost like an, is, a, is a paradigm of reality that we live in or something. And so to, to be able to sort of describe things in a scientific manner is to um 
you know, in some ways become the, to describe things in the most real way or the most objective way. And the fact that he's pairing that scientific discourse with this total supernatural divine rising of souls is like, it's great. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. It also, I'm thinking a little bit about how we discuss this in the poem Nursing Home, where there's that section that goes straight into, like, it's from a medical journal, basically. And I'm thinking about the fact that this language points to, as you said, it's like a scientific way of speaking about the ozone layer, uh, which does put me in the mind of medicine and the medical profession, and that the ozone layer is in a way uh, a part of the Earth's immune system. It blocks out ultraviolet light. It protects us from harmful intrusion from without. And in a play that deals with HIV, which attacks the human immune system, I think that's a pretty powerful uh, connection for him to be drawing, which he never makes explicit here, other than the reference to people dying in a plague, which has been set up, um, and also the fact that Harper has been interested in the ozone layer before in the play. But the fact that here we're talking about the immune system of the planet, when the play is so deeply interested in a disease that attacks our own defenses against infection and disease, uh, I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that I really like that. It, yeah, it makes me think of um, that repair is the is like a really important part of the play and that the kind of another way to think of a comedy is resolution or um and the structure of this play is a, is a kind of repair after a, a rupture or whatever um and and this yeah and i and that that makes so much sense that how important that would be especially given talking about hiv when um the sort of the body's ability to repair, especially when it becomes AIDS, is sort of irrevocably damaged. Um, and also, it's just like, I mean, I know, I mean, it's sad because, like, obviously, we've known about the science for a long time, but it just feels ever prescient and relevant that we're talking about the ozone layer. And they mentioned uh, global warming at one point. Um, and so the play also has that dimension of like actually thinking about the world as the world and not just like a proxy for like human life. Um, but it is sort of concerned about the damage that's, that's happening on that, that large scale. Definitely. And the link, I like that you pulled out repaired because I think that's an interesting word, particularly when it is put next to painful progress because it's sort of like working out, like you tear your muscles and then as they repair, they grow. Like that's how your body heals you from injuring it basically. And then you get stronger and fitter and whatever. Um, but the, the word repaired puts me in mind of something that is stronger after that it was broken. And then in fixing it, you've, it, it, it's not necessarily in the word, but the fact that it is right next to then nothing's lost forever in this world, there is a kind of painful progress. It's in the, the moments of tension and struggle that real progress is made as part of, I think, where the play is at and part of what this is pointing to, particularly because it takes place uh, or and was written 
well, it was written, it takes place during the tail end of the Cold War, but it was written right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the end of the Soviet Union, around the time that the famous End of History article was written by Francis Fukuyama, which was basically saying that the ideological struggles that had been the hallmark of the 20th century were now over, and that in the dialectical progression of history, the thesis, antithesis, and eventual synthesis, the dialectic of communism and democratic capitalism had finally resolved itself. The thesis and the antithesis, the synthesis was the world after the end of the Soviet Union, liberal democracy had prevailed. Um, this idea that history was over and that that kind of progression had ended. I think this play is working against that notion that it's all ended, that history has ended, that there is no more painful progress to be had, that there will still be. Um, I mean, even in this, uh, in talking about how connected Harper is to reality, there's the thesis of reality, the antithesis of her visions, and this is a synthesis of them that points to the future. And I think in reading the word repaired and looking at painful progress, that's what painful progress is. It's when these different ideas collide and then a new, not necessarily a new world, but a new uh, reality or a new idea is put forward. Yeah, that's exactly right. And fittingly, the very end, the very, very end of the play is a kind of, is an epilogue that actually happens, I think, right after it's, it jumps ahead to February 1990. Um, and the Berlin Wall has just fallen. So there's like a slight little moment um, that sort of around that time that you're talking about. Um, and there's an amusing, like Lewis is another big character who's, who endlessly amuses me. Um, and he's kind of like a very self-conscious caricature of Tony Kushner himself, I feel, um, which I think has been talked about in many ways. But Lewis in this final epilogue is actually arguing, seems to be arguing something similar to the end of history. He says, you know, whatever comes, you what you have to admire in Gorbachev and the Russians is that they're making a leap into the unknown or I don't know. And he's like very rah, rah, rah about it, sort of. Um, but, he also previously yeah. specifically talks about his own worldview being a sort of positive dialectical progression, quasi-Hegelian through history, blah, blah, blah. He's very <laughs> verbose. But then at the very, very end, Pryor sort of interrupts them, which is hilarious. He's like pausing Lewis's conversation. <laughs> um, like literally, he's just like, all right, now you're going to stop talking and then addresses the audience and his his like sort of end line is, you know, by now you are fabulous creatures, each and every one. And I bless you more life. The great work begins. Yeah, it just seems right in, in terms of what you were talking about, the painful progress and, and the rejection of this idea of the end of history is that, you know, at we, as we come to the end of this play, it's actually, you know, the beginning or we finally are able to begin again or something. Um, and that there's so much work to be done. And I think about like Fantasia too. You know, we talked about poems as events or something um, rather than being about things. And and so their, their art is also kind of like 
dreaming in that way where it's not quite you're not quite acting out you're not quite working towards something or doing something per se but you're also not theorizing exactly and you're sort of you're envisioning something in a hypothetical way but in a way that's sort of governed by you know what you desire harper is 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 kind of the ultimate dreamer i guess um which feels you know important and and feels like it seems like important for the play especially you know for prior walter where it's like he has this moment when he's sort of rejecting that book of stasis he says you know i've lived through such terrible times and there are people who live through much much worse but you see them living anyway when they're more spirit than body more sores than skin when they're burned and in agony, when flies lay eggs in the corners of the eyes of their children, they live. Death usually has to take life away. I don't know if that's just the animal. I don't know if it's not braver to die, but I recognize the habit, the addiction to being alive. We live past hope. If I can find hope anywhere, that's it. That's the best I can do. It's so much not enough, so inadequate, but bless me anyway, I want more life, um, which I also love. Um, but it does seem like there's a kind of knowledge that sort of actual theory or like sort of legitimate hope, I don't really know what that means, and things getting better seems like both sort of foolish, but also totally wrong uh, and inaccurate, you know, when things are as horrible as they are, yet there's still something that keeps you going. That living past hope is the sort of the dream, kind of, um, that that isn't rooted, isn't the action per se, but isn't rooted in the sort of rational, theoretical, blah, blah, blah. And I think that probably ties into the fact that all of the souls of the dead that are floating up are people who've perished by pretty violent means famine war plague i mean these are not just anybody who's died is floating up to to do this repair work these are people who uh met a violent or a difficult end and i think that is exactly right it is that they in some way lived past hope they fought against death they chose life before eventually dying um and that whatever the the soul that is left is the strong soul that is the stuff of ozone that will then continue to repair and protect the world that it is that sense of hope that they leave behind that their you know struggle for life is an example of that can then help others see the painful progress of the world that they can long for what was left behind long for the life that is no longer there but dream ahead to a world where maybe that life doesn't have to be lost at all. And in fact, nothing's lost forever is the conclusion that, that Harper comes to. Yeah. I love that. And I also love, it's just such a beautiful, uh, the, the language is just so beautiful. Um, and so lyrical, especially, you know, so people who had perished from famine, from war, from the plague, and they floated up like skydivers in reverse limbs mm. all akimbo wheeling and spinning which is just amazing i mean what a cool image um of 
skydivers in reverse. And especially I love that it's like reverse. It's like reverse falling, which already feels reverse in itself. Um, and limbs all akimbo. I don't know. Great. Just like we're bent everywhere. Um, but the sounds are so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that just feels like really great. Um, yeah, because you could say like spread eagled or something, but doesn't yeah. feel the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that makes me think of this is like slightly a tangent, but um, especially because we're talking about something that's not a poem, but we're still talking about something like the poetic or whatever. Um, there was this great moment that I found in this interview with uh, the short story writer, um, Stuart Dybeck, who also writes poetry. And he had this idea that I really haven't found in other places. And I'm kind of furious about it because I think it's very interesting. But he was talking about how he likes to think about modes rather than genres. um, In that you have like, say you have your genres, narrative, or, um, you know, fiction, poetry, theater, plays, whatever. Um, Each genre has kind of like a natural mode to it. And he lays out three modes, although there's probably more, as like the narrative mode, the lyrical mode, and the dramatic mode. Um, And so obviously, the kind of the narrative mode is natural to the fiction genre. Um, The lyrical mode is natural to poetry. Dramatic is natural to narrative. But there are things that every genre can like move in and out of um and sort of that like one way to think about um art and how it's working is like the way that it's moving in between modes um and so like in this moment i think is the moment when the play which it does sort of a lot in perestroika is moving out of the sort of natural dramatic mode Um, into the kind of lyrical mode. I just wanted to read a little bit about it. So he says, each mode thinks in a different way. For instance, compare the lyrical and narrative. The narrative works through telling stories, which means putting events along a chronological line. The great power of the narrative is that when you put an event on the line, you are strongly implying cause and effect. You're saying that at 10 o'clock, he brushed his teeth with crest instead of the pervert preferred Colgate, and as he brushed his teeth, he got enormously angry at his wife, and at 11 o'clock, he went in and strangled his wife. <laughs> you can oh, say, shit. yeah, which really got out of hand there, as Might an example. Work. Yeah, um, you say that one caused the other just because you link them on the narrative line. So that's sort of like, that kind of writing is a, is a kind of thinking um, that like fiction or things that are in a narrative way um, are sort of working. And then he says, the lyrical, and this connects a lot to what we were talking about, works like a dream does through association, metaphorical thinking. Poetry is the vehicle for metaphorical thinking, the bringing together of unrelated things. Then the part that I think is interesting, or especially interesting, is the way that he talks about modes in terms of time. This will be the last part that I'll read. Um, so he's, tar- he's talking about Joyce, James Joyce's story, The Dead, 
I would look at a story by Joyce, a story I love, The Dead, and I see all those modes in that story, not just the narrative mode. It made me more aware of the treatment of time. For instance, when you get in the narrative mode, you are inescapably writing about time. You can't help it. The narrative mode depends so heavily on chronological line, and time moves at a certain pace in the narrative mode. You make all kinds of decisions based on time, on the way you've organized those events, so pacing becomes hugely important. However, time in the lyrical mode moves at an entirely different pace. You can extend time the way that time is extended when you smoke dope, which I like that. You can shrink time. You don't have to feel obligated to make it symmetrical. And then he says, the time it takes you and I to have this conversation, because it's an interview, our dialogue is real time. Nothing's speeding us up. Nothing's slowing us down. We're in the present, you and I, talking right now. That's what drama is, the dramatic mode, a keenly selected, heightened present. So time in the dramatic mode is real time. So I like thinking about that in terms of drama being sort of naturally um, just real time, things lining up, and but everything's just very charged and very heightened. Whereas narrative, there's actually like a lot of real time that's then being like selectively curated along a chron chronology um, to sort of like make us see cause and effect. Whereas the lyrical has this sort of elongating of time um, and the, also that sort of associative logic. I don't know. It, it's interesting to think about the play, especially the play as two parts, because the first play, Millennium Approaches of Angels in America, is like a very tight, dramatic, three-part play. Um, there's like lyrical moments, but it's like very much works and moves because of the sort of real time conflict that the characters are having with each other. Um, and then Perestroika still has those elements, but is like entirely blown up and there's long weird monologues and we're in heaven for a long time. And like we're seeing, there's one part where we're watching, we're in a Mormon museum and we're watching live dolls give some weird history of Mormonism. Um, and everything's just like funky. Um, and it seems to me that in a way, the perestroika is like a very, it's like almost, or it's like much more heavily in the lyrical mode. There's a way in which Krishner is trying to like, take all of the dramatic charge that he created in the first part and then kind of like stretch it out and like push it into something and tease as much out as he can in perestroika um and also be able to be more associative and dreamlike um as a way to kind of like get into this kind of grand vision for like what America can be or something. And it seems to work. And especially in Harper's monologue is one example of this, of like a sort of purely lyrical mode um, where, and, and the language, you know, like the language being poetic, quote unquote, saying skydivers in reverse limbs, all akimbo wheeling and spinning the rhythm. That's sort of like the necessary juice to like, bring the moment into the lyrical mode. That's kind of like the the fuel that you give it to propel it up there. Um, and, and in doing so, 
we're able to 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 like go there ourselves in a way uh, into the dreaming ourselves because it's in a lyrical mode. I think is what Dybeck might say um, that because time has sort of like become longer, we're in this weird stretchy space. Um, and that sort of opens us up as like an audience in the same way that Harper is perhaps. Um, I realized that was like very long, but. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you say very awesome? Cause it was. Um, no, that was great. And it put me in mind of two things. One of which is that I know that Kushner was freaked out about writing Perestroika after Millennium and wasn't sure about it. And that this section is something he already had written that his friend then encouraged him like, no, you have to keep going. You have to write Perestroika for this. Um, so the fact that this intensely lyrical part was already completed and in fact was part of the uh, motivation to keep going with Perestroika, I think probably points to the lyrical heart of that piece. And I really like that you pulled that out. Uh, and then the one other thing that this monologue put me in mind of, which is another instance of moving from a narrative or dramatic mode to a lyrical mode was um, particularly this line longing for what we left behind and dreaming ahead um, put me in mind of as many things do, but this more than most, uh, the end of the great Gatsby where there's boats. So we beat on boats against the current borne back ceaselessly into the past, very much felt echoed here in longing for what we've left behind and dreaming ahead. Uh, and that whole passage at the end of Gatsby, quite literally, the world drops away and Nick, the whole narrative has sort of concluded and Nick is like putting a, a, uh, a an overlay to it, a thematic and a theoretical overlay where he's talking about how the houses melt away and he sees the green breast of the new world that once flowered before Dutch sailors eyes. Uh, and that's very much what's going on, I think, in Harper's monologue. She is seeing the world as it exists drop away, and then this is what she sees laid over it. And then the the bit that she puts on the end about painful progress and dreaming ahead is very similar to how Nick then draws back to uh, Gatsby and and the green light at the end of his sort of lapse into lyricism. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great comparison. Yeah. My professor talked about the get those moments in Gatsby as uh, Fitzgerald um, bringing up the violins or like <laughs> playing up the, the strings basically, um, which, yeah, which is another way of saying that it gets musical or lyrical. Um, but I think that is also as you're like sort of the, those moments that sort of like elevate Gatsby as a novel. Um, and yeah, and I love that you mentioned there's this great, we'll link to it, but uh, there's this great oral history of Angels in America um, that there's like a long reads on Slate, but it's also a book. Um, and I've read the long reads and I haven't yet read the book, but I'm going to get it soon. But that's I think where Jack was drawing from where um, they basically interviewed like hundreds of people i think who were variously involved in the play and then they're sort of like all talking about it um and like the making of it it's like really fascinating um but kushner has this part where um he's he's like uh 
he's like walking with his friend Sigrid and then um, she's like, well, what happens next? And I told her what I knew of the plot and she said, have you written any of it? And I showed her in my notebook when we got into her house, this thing I had just written sitting in the park that turned into Harper's monologue on the flight to San Francisco at the end. Um, this part that we're talking about now. And then, and she read it and she cried a little and she said, this is going to have to be in the play. And I said, I know, but what am I going to cut? And she said, why don't you make it two plays? Boom. Boom. The other part from that oral history is they have interviews of all the, or many of the various people who played Harper in various productions. And they sort of talk about what it was like to do that speech, um, which is really amazing. And then also they have this bit at, uh, from Kushner and he says, it's the best paragraph I've ever written. The last, only last little thought that I have is that it's interesting thinking about the play as a whole um, is the very first thing that Harper says actually connects very specifically to this monologue. Um, and she's sort of like by herself and starts saying, you know, when you look at the ozone layer from outside from a spaceship, it looks like a pale blue halo. Um, 30 miles above our heads, a thin layer of three atom oxygen molecules, product of photosynthesis. Da, 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 da. Um, so she's like creating almost, in some ways, word for word, the same kind of image. Um, but in the beginning, um, she sort of ends that saying, um, you know, it's a kind of gift from God, uh, a blue green nesting orb, a shell of safety for life itself, which sort of returns again. But then she says, but everywhere, things are collapsing, lies surfacing, systems of defense giving away. This is why, Joe, this is why I shouldn't be left alone. Um, I'd like to go traveling, leave you behind to worry. I'll send postcards with strange stamps and tantalizing messages on the back. Um, Anyway, and so there's a there's a nice sort of almost like word for word resolution where here we have the same kind of image, but it's in fact broken or it's collapsing. And she has the wish for traveling. And then by the end, we return to that image. Um, but she's, you know, she's in her jumbo jet and she is going. And even though things are you know, even though there's a hole, hole in the ozone layer and that things are sort of collapsing, there's also now the souls sort of rising to repair the outer rim. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just, everything about it is great. Yeah. It's, it would be it, great on its own, but the fact that it is so strongly, not just thematically linked, but like literally linked to how her character entered the whole, it's just, yeah. it really is a great example of what makes Angels in America so great because it goes in so many different directions all the time, but you never feel totally lost. I think there are a lot of roads to go down within the play, but you always feel like you're on one of them. Yeah. Uh, so good. It's so good. Shall we, shall we do it again? We should read it again. All right, cool. This is Harper's monologue from the end of Angels in America, part two, Perestroika. Night flight to San Francisco. Chase the moon across America. God, it's been years since I was on a plane. When we hit 35,000 feet, we'll have reached the tropopause, the great belt of calm air. As close as I'll ever get to the ozone. I dreamed we were there. 
the plane left the tropopause, the safe air, and attained the outer rim, the ozone, which was ragged and torn, patches of it threadbare as old cheesecloth. And that was frightening. But I saw something only I could see, because of my astonishing ability to see such things. Souls were rising. From the earth, far below, souls of the dead, of people who had perished from famine, from war, from the plague, and they floated up, like skydivers in reverse, limbs all akimbo, wheeling and spinning, and the souls of these departed joined hands, clasped ankles and formed a web, a great net of souls, and the souls were three atom oxygen molecules of the stuff of ozone, and the outer rim absorbed them and was repaired. Nothing's lost forever. In this world, there's a kind of painful progress, longing for what we've left behind and dreaming ahead. At least, I think that's so. Thank you all for sticking around for a somewhat supersized episode of Close Talking. This is the part of the show where we remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and that you can find it all over the internet on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or on Google Play. Uh, If you want to keep in touch with Connor or myself, Twitter is a great way to do that. The show is at Close Talking on Twitter. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. We've got a Facebook page where we share all kinds of different news articles about poetry. We put the links to the show up there, and it's a great place to keep up with what's going on in between episodes. If you have comments on this episode or thoughts for any future episodes, you can also send us an email. And we love getting suggestions for poems and hearing your thoughts on whether we missed anything or if you think there's another reading of a poem that we've covered uh, that we should that we should think about. Uh, you can send any and all of that stuff to our email address, which is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you in any and all different ways that you deem best. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.